Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where everyone knows that Jesus and Santa are white. They are. It's historically <laughs> verifiable. Oh. A bishop from Turkey and a guy that born in Palestine. <laughs> exactly. Oh, you can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, 95.3 FM, W237CZ, Hudsonville, and 88.3 FM, WPJC in Pontiac, Illinois, and coming soon to more stations. Uh, and as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, how's it going? And Justin Schieber. Hello. And, of course, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I'm here. Uh, coming up in today's show, <laughs> we have the second part of our morality series in God Thinks Like You, uh, some polyatheism, props, and a stranger than fiction. But first, yeah, it's been a while since we've talked about the Catholic Church, at least an episode or two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Pope Francis. He's making some headlines. Yeah, mainly in Time Magazine. He is Time's Person of the Year. Time Magazine gave the reason why. Quote, for pulling the papacy out of the palace and into the streets, for committing the world's largest faith to confronting its deepest needs, for balancing judgment with mercy, Pope Francis is Time's 2013 Person of the Year. Another juicy quote from the magazine, what makes this pope so important is the speed with which he has captured the imaginations of millions who had given up on hope for the church at all. People weary of the endless parsing of sexual ethics, the buck-passing infighting over lines of authority, when all the while, to borrow from Milton, the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. In a matter of months, Francis has elevated the healing mission of the church, the church as a servant and comforter of the hurting people in an often harsh world above the doctrinal police work so important to his recent predecessors. And I think that is kind of the sense that a lot of people have about Francis. We were mm-hmm. just talking in the studio earlier. Dave was mentioning that you, you know, grudgingly really like this guy. I, I kind of, I mean, he's yet to say anything horrible about women or gays. Yeah, but um, he's got a real stupid hat still, guys. I mean, yeah, I can't forget true. this. This All, is really important. To be fair, much less ostentatious fashion than um, he's uh, not wearing Benedict, the Prada, the right? red shoes, and That's true. he. he to a, a fair extent, practices what he preaches. He's following in the the Franciscan order, um, you know, vow of poverty, and he's talking about social issues in a way that we haven't gotten from, um, you know, Joey Ratz, who came before him and was, I I would say, objectively evil. Right? I mean, uh, <laughs> Pope Benedict was terrible. Um, Pope Benedict convinces Dave Fletcher of yeah, moral realism. I uh, yes, um, but uh, and you know John Paul was uh, was a different sort too. But this this yeah. Pope Frankie, it just it just uh, Frankie seemed, says relax. Seemed with Benedict and uh, others, it seemed like it was just 
so many wanted to reform the church, but it was going to be impossible. And I right. think with Pope Francis, it feels like, yes, we can. Yeah, full of hope and change. Which is kind of where the critique comes in mm-hmm. on my side of things. Yes. Um, obviously, we're drawing a parallel between Barack Obama and the Pope. Uh, you know, We kind of felt the same way when Obama was elected. Yeah. He was saying the right things mm-hmm. and uh, it, was a, it was a very important shift from his predecessor who, uh, who also seemed objectively to be getting, evil. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, all this, and there's all this hope and right away, right, um, Obama won all these international accolades and the Nobel Peace, <laughs> Nobel Prize, Peace Prize and things like that in advance <laughs> of seeing what he was going to actually do. Yeah. And it seems like Pope Francis is in the same category. Uh, he's saying the right things. It's such a refreshing change of pace. But there hasn't been any real tangible, measurable change that we can see other than his kind of public persona. Right. And, uh, he's saying nice words. Friend of the show, Candida Moss – had exactly the same thing to say in Politico in her article, What Time Got Wrong About the Pope. Uh, She points out an interesting thing here. When Time first announced Francis was going to be a contender for Person of the Year, the website noted the reason why and said his rejection of church dogma. Mm. Mm, That's that's overstepping a bit. mm, People started posting comments, rightly so, to their Twitter, to their website and everything else saying – that's not at all the case. There hasn't been a single tangible thing we could see that he's changed. And so time changed their description to his rejection of luxury. Ah, which is accurate-ish. I mean, yeah. accurate-ish. He's, still the he's, he's still not winning the Vatican on yeah. an estate yeah. sale. He's not wearing he's... The, the, red, the red shoes anymore, yeah. the red Prada shoes. And he, he rides the bus to work. Actually, yeah. He just lives there, right? But he used to ride the bus. Yeah, he'll occasionally ditch his expensive security entourage to take selfies with uh, <laughs> with ordinary people and yeah, at, at the visiting the Holy See. But yeah. Moss says about this change in language, this is a revealing connection indeed and one that is indicative of a widespread misconception about Francis. He may have changed perceptions of the church, but he hasn't changed her substance. Hmm. Throwing off the red leather shoes of the papacy is hardly the same as rejecting the teachings of Roman Catholicism. But then she goes on to say, you know, he has breathed fresh air into Catholicism and uh, uh, he has changed the rhetoric from his predecessors. And so he's going to be one to watch. Mm-hmm. But uh, but we're still in that phase. We're still watching, still waiting to see yeah. if Francis delivers on any of his rhetoric. Much and like you know Obama, what? Everybody actually. in this room, as much as we may not like the Catholic Church, every person in this room hopes he succeeds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He could do some real good. Yeah. Um, the Catholic Church is not necessarily a force for evil. It is incredibly powerful and they can help a lot of people. I don't expect that that he's going to be the first pope to allow gay marriage or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But as far as providing for people who are hungry and starving to death, the Catholic Church can do a lot well, yeah. To that end, and much like Obama, though one person isn't going to be able to do it. That's, this is I already feel Especially like I'm if giving he even try, too much credit uh, to Obama already. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but clearly, the president would have been able to get through more of his reforms if he didn't have if he didn't have a Congress that right. was stubbornly opposed to everything he does. And although the Pope, the Pope has a similar dynamic in the Vatican, yes. people tend to think because he's the head of the church that he can just snap his fingers and right. make it so. 
the but Solana he's going to have cool. a lot of pushback. There's, and remember, Benedict is still around. He's still, <laughs> still alive. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Not he's a player. He's, but No, but but that mentality yes. of his and all of the people right, that were right. his buddies the when old he guard was Pope, is still in they're there. still there. Those are still the guys. Yeah, the, uh, the Solana article points out that uh, you know he does face a lot of those kind of same uh, problems that that you know Obama faced, where you have a shrinking centrist core mm-hmm. and a polarized polity is what the uh, Salon article notes, and an increasingly vocal fringe. Yes. So yeah, he, he's he's just only one guy. I mean, yeah, he's in the he's in a leadership position, but that's not necessarily well the other good th- enough to make yeah. the kinds of changes we'd like to see. The thing which um, is different than the situation with. Obama um, is that a he doesn't have to worry about get, getting reelected. He's in there for a lifetime or until he decides to retire. Appointment. Um, yeah. He and he's fairly young for a pope, so this guy it can be a slow yeah. burn with Pope Francis. Although many of the issues that he's facing are not things that we can take our time with. We can't. Mm. We can't take thirty years to fix the child sex abuse. This is something that needs to happen yeah. now. Yeah. But so I'm very hopeful, but uh, but let's recognize that the optimistic. hype is outstripped the action at yes. this point. We'll see where it goes. Let's not give him a Nobel Peace Prize before he starts bombing Libya. Um, <laughs> with just saying. communion wafers. Yeah, right. Whatever it is they're using. Um, yeah. More Catholic related news. Um, this is yeah. coming from uh, uh, local. Now, according to Salon, it happened in Muskego, Michigan. I love that place. <laughs> I, yeah. I was confused. I thought maybe that was a real place. Someone stole the inn. Um, yes, that's, how, that's the kind of place it is. It's uh, Muskegon, which is actually just up the road from here. This is a um, an ACLU suit that claims the Catholic uh, Catholic hospitals, specifically a local Catholic hospital, um, put uh, this particular woman at risk. And this is not the only time that that's happened. But here's the case. In question, um, it involves a mother of three from Muskegon, Michigan, called uh, Tamisha Means. And the salon, or I'm sorry, NPR article says, in December 2010, when she was 18 weeks pregnant, her water broke. Now, let me put an aside in here. 18 weeks is a good, like, two months before the age of viability. So if your water, and once your water breaks, you've got 24 hours to deliver. Um, so she, at this point, there is essentially no chance that her child is going to survive. Okay. 18 weeks, uh, pregnant, her water broke. It's, it's not going to make it. Now, somewhere down the line, we may be able to push viability back to 18 weeks, but, uh, uh, that seems like a stretch anyway. So fairly early pregnancy quote, a friend drove her to the nearest hospital, Mercy Health Partners, where she was told she was likely to lose the baby. But she was not told that the hospital would not do the therapeutic abortion she would get in a non-Catholic facility. She was given medication to stop contractions and sent home. She returned to the hospital later, bleeding, running a fever, and in pain, and begging them to help her. Um, Because, you know, Mercy Health Partners is... Merciful. Yes, absolutely. Well, the article also points out that she didn't even know it was a Catholic yeah. hospital. Yeah. And they don't, they don't advertise that's it. That's part of the problem here yeah. is that not that just they refused – you know, medically the best option for her and the article cites all sort of medical experts to mm-hmm. say this. Absolutely. The safest thing would have been to say, look, this baby's lost. 
Yes. Um, but there's complications to your own health that can be avoided if we terminate it. Yeah. It's – I mean the baby's already dead. They didn't even let her know mm-hmm. and make an informed choice on this. She could have gone to another hospital Absolutely. and received that service. But they didn't even tell her medically that was the case with right. her. Not uh, only would they not do the procedure, but they wouldn't even tell her that such a procedure yeah. was necessary, really. And that other places could do it. Yeah. And uh, which which is negligence. Yes, absolutely. But here's the real twist in this: the ACLU is not suing the hospital. Right. They're not suing Mercy Health Partners for being negligent in their duties. What they're suing is the United <laughs> States Conference of Catholic Bishops hmm. and they're suing them specifically for negligence. Going for the much bigger fish because, because, because this is a systemic problem. It's not this one case. Oh, I agree. Yeah. If, if you look at where – why the Catholic Church – why the Catholic hospitals make these policies – they're doing it according to the guidelines laid out in, quote, the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Health Care Services, which is published by the Bishops' Council. Which Bishops, limits yeah. their their actions and you know, right. what they can it say. tells them they can't perform abortions even if the woman's life or health is at risk yep. and a number of other rules that are based in the doctrines of the Catholic Church. But the Conference of Bishops is a religious body mm-hmm. ruling on – how should we apply theological doctrine to right. practical areas of life? So essentially – Which is what makes this kind of strange. So the question is – Is religious doctrine the one – the thing that is being negligent here? Can you blame a doctrine or a body of doctrine makers for mm-hmm. being – can you hold them legally accountable to consequences of that? Let's say somebody uh, – let's say somebody is a jihadi, right, and they go out and attack people. Of course you can – you can punish them for their actions mm-hmm. there. Can you punish the cleric out there who said that this is the way you right. should behave? Right. And, who says and, that this is the not, official interpretation and, right. of the Quran? That and not in a not in a way like specifically saying let's strap bombs and go out into the crowd and blow right. people up. Uh, that could be an instigation to violence. But just for articulating the doctrine, right, that civilian casualties are acceptable in the cause of Islam. Could you is is that are you infringing on the person's freedom of speech and conscience to do that. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? Right. Or because it does seem that the Catholics policies, the, their hospitals policies are directly related to what the bishops yeah. are saying. You could Absolutely. trace kind of – you could make a case that they're culpable. And, and I'm wondering too if this would extend um, to cases where um, say parents who are Christian scientists and refuse to get their children medical care because they don't believe in right. – Medical right. care. Could the, the, the larger church right. be held responsible for telling That's the parents? That's what we're asking. Like yeah. The yeah. parents, the parents is one situation, mm-hmm. but can you go to the, and if, and if you can't go to the church, where do you stop? What about the printing facilities that, you right. know, the publishers that are making a book money off of selling these books? They it's have a kind spokesman. Of scary to me, though, I, I gotta say, because I'm all about freedom of speech and I would, I would hate to see the ACLU is too, obviously. Yeah, right. Um, so it's a, it's a weird situation they find themselves in. Yeah, that's in why I, I find this so strange. I, what the ACLU said in their brief, I, I kind of agree with with the way they're thinking about it. I don't know if this is a good strategy. Mm-hmm. The way they're thinking about it is religious 
religious protections should apply to individuals. Mm-hmm. And so, you Which know, is what workers, it says in the Constitution. workers in these facilities shouldn't have to go against the dictates of their own conscience or good ethical practices for the for their area mm-hmm. just because, you know, some higher up but if it's an official thing intrinsic to the hospital, rather but again, than a, again, why choice. would you sue the bishops instead of instead of the hospital? There, here's one right. one le- um, Richard Garnett, who's a law professor at University of Notre Dame, Notre Dame. So he's probably Catholic or at least associated mm-hmm. strongly with it. He makes out a point that this is a this is almost tort responsibility for religious doctrines. He says to sort of claim that it's negligence for the bishops to be issuing directives reminding Catholic hospitals what the church's teachings are with respect to things like an abortion and sterilization. That's a stretch. It seems to me to be adopting a sort of – a strange notion of tort responsibility that religious teachings can actually become legal negligence. So the article wonders if uh, this approach kind of shows the ACLU as not not necessarily trying to win the case but more bringing – Attention to these difficult issues. Yeah, um, yeah, but that's not such a good way to do it because I know, you lose a case you like this, and then. you have precedent written up, and, and that's yes. we might have a situation dangerous. down the line where it's much more clear. Yes, mm-hmm. say that, you know, take a smaller church. Take you know, say it's Westboro, and Fred Phelps is telling his um, parishioners to do something, as opposed to the giant megalith that is the Catholic Church. You can point it at directly one person who is performing negligence of this type right. and that this would set a precedent against that. Now, we do need to be talking about the Catholic Church's wanton negligence when right. it comes to women's health. This is a serious problem and we're not trying to overlook that. It's just the it's, a, it's an interesting legal strategy. Issue, yeah. yeah. It'll be uh, interesting to see how it plays out because it's it's a very complicated um Issue here, and it's a pretty bold boy. move too for the ACLU to target the the bishops directly. I, was gonna, I mean, even suing a, a major hospital like that is a big deal um, for something like this. But uh, I mean, it happens all the time. But to to go after the the conference of Catholic bishops, they got the they got a pair of balls on them for yeah, uh, sure for something like this. Well. See how it pans out. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how I want it to pan I, out. I, I, I know. I'm more just interested in seeing how the arguments develop. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, speaking of which, um, Luke, I don't know what you're up to, but I'm interested to see how it develops. So what have you got for us for God Things Like You? As part of my morality ser- winter series, the winter of morality, are we calling it that? <laughs> I like it. I like it. It implies that it's almost in in a, in a nadir point, like there's just no morality left. It's cold and frozen and dark. So. <laughs> well, Ragnarok is approaching. That's what's Winter's uh, coming and, moral- and immorality yourselves. as we know it. Anyway, um, the listeners of the last episode might uh, remember, recall that I'm – sort of uh, working on projects right now that have to do with things like religion and irreligion and morality. And even shows before that, I've talked about things that uh, some of the hot uh, issues in morality research beyond religion, like where does, you know, where does morality come from? How do people make decisions on that? We've talked all on the show with the philosophy guys here about things like deontological morality, you know, basing it on rules and 
and uh, inviolable principles versus consequentialist morality that has to do with you know what are the actual effects utilitarian wise in the real world. So th- what I thought I'd talk about today though is that there's some um, there's some consensus coming along that um, that religious people do think about morality differently, especially religious people that are fundamentalists, uh, because of where they think that morality stems from. That is the the origin of morality. If you assume that it's coming from you know the creator of the universe, it actually affects how you make moral decisions sometimes uh, in a way that's more deontological. That is, they view it as being rules that are set down that are inviolable. It doesn't matter what the consequences of the actions are. If it comes from God, that makes it moral. As opposed to people like us who are probably more often non-religious people are consequentialists. That is, we any given action we would say, what are the effects likely to be? On, on average, you know, is it likely to be positive or negative? And if it's positive, that means that the action is moral. So like for a tangible example, lying might not be bad if no one's going to be hurt by that lie or if you're going to avoid a much more gruesome outcome by lying, then lie. It might, lying might be the moral thing to do, whereas a religious person would be much more – much less willing Theoretically, yes, to say yeah, that lying yeah. is permissible in those situations, or, or to look because at, they look at the rule first, right? Thou right. shall not lie. To look at the uh, story we were just talking about, a religious person would say abortion is absolutely wrong, no matter what the circumstances. We would say baby's already dead; it's not going to survive. Right. You're mother hurting the mother by yeah. um, uh, by not performing this necessary thing. Yeah, so, so. people, philosophy people, usually associate. Each position respectively with Immanuel Kant and his uh, categorical imperatives of something's deontologically wrong. It's never permissible to lie, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other uh, end would be, I guess, uh, the utilitarians like John Stuart Mill would say that you know it's based on consequences. So the classic example they give in philosophy 101 is if the Nazis come to your door and ask if you're hiding the Jews, you know, Kant would say you can't lie to them because lying's wrong. Whereas that guy is such a con. Whereas John Stuart Mill would say, I, you know, I, yeah, well, if lying saves their lives, then that outweighs that. Right. Of course, the other extreme example that they like to mess with your head with is if you think that it's on average good to the greatest number of people and that makes it moral, if there's a bunch of people that show up that need organ transplants, right. you should support killing somebody and harvesting their organs to save yeah. five people because mm. five people live and only one dies. So – so there seems to be something. Yeah, there's problems with both ends with of that both meta-ethical of them, yeah. spectrum. Those are usually the examples they give to make yeah. students cry when they stake out a position. <laughs> yeah, right, I know. Right. I know. But I want to talk about is there's a couple studies that sort of illustrate this both theor- philosophically in a theoretical sense, and then empirically about, like I said before, about religious people or, or non-religious people. Uh, on one, and there's a series of studies by a researcher named Piazza. Uh, that looks like Piazza? at isn't he a baseball player or something? Maybe he's related to them. Sounds like a sports. I think it's Jerry. I love Piazza, like but, pepperoni uh, Piazza. Oh, deep dish Piazza. <laughs> I'm sure he's heard I all the jokes. Chicago over New York style. No, that's yeah. not true. I prefer New York style. Ah, screw John Stewart. I'm yeah. sure he's heard all the jokes, guys. Anyway, Piazza has this whole series of studies on deontological versus consequentialist thinking and reality – or uh, religion. There's a study that he published with a guy named Landy in 2013 that uh, has an intriguing title, Lean Not on Your Own Understanding, which is a hmm. quote from uh, Proverbs, I think. Yeah. Um, 
And just like the title implies, he's uh, he looked at whether religious people's belief in what we would call as being an authoritative deontological divine command theory, that is what makes something moral is because God says it's moral. Right. And so he had a whole scale developed to measure your de- the degree of your endorsement of that demi- divine command theory. And what he cross-referenced it was somebody's utilitarian versus consequentialist decision-making in various moral dilemmas. So some of these – most listeners have probably heard about the ones we've talked about on the show like the trolley scenario or the lifeboat scenario where you would – unfortunately, one person might be sacrificed to save five people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a de- again, like we were saying before, a deontologist would, would not intervene. Even if the five people would die, he would say, I'm not going to intervene to make that decision because it's wrong to kill people. Whereas the utilitarian type decision would be, well, it's unfortunate that one person would die but more people would live if I act. And um, just like the way we've been talking, what, he, what Piazza found in the series of studies is that it's, the, it's because religious people have this demi- divine command theory belief that accounts for their deontological thinking style. That is to the degree that you endorse morality comes from a source, an objective source, God. It's, that, uh, it's the degree that you endorse that that predicts your – in all those different scenarios, your tendency to lean towards the categorical, deontological, moral decisions. So blindness towards consequences in the actual yes. real world. That's a good way to put it. It makes – it's divine command <laughs> belief makes people more consequence blind. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. And like – so this, this cross-references with other moral domains we've talked about on the show before like Jonathan Haidt's morality where he talks about some people, conservatives, for example, endorse things like authority beliefs or sanctity beliefs and, and that predicts this as well. Uh, quick question though. You say consequence blind but are they looking at the greater consequence of salvation versus damnation? Ah. I mean is that, is that what we have Well, that would be on? the motivation for – yeah, that, but that, I mean that is a consequence, right? Sure, I mean, sure. Well, some, in, in, in some sense though, every moral theory is going to be consequentialist in some sense. You can't avoid that. I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah so what, for, I think that's actually an excellent point is that probably what they would uh, endorse, especially like a high fundamentalist would endorse is, is that – that there's a the greater good here is not just the moral action itself, but if God's up there watching, it's violating His law. The consequence is that you piss God off, right. or that you disrupt some sort of moral order. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of the actually the items on this divine authority scale, it's things that also involve God as a third party. So things like acts are immoral because God forbids them, but also you know you should look to God for these rules. It's revealed by God's holy word. So it draws him as a third party that, yes, you're not just injuring Yes, I'm not just injuring you, but I'm injuring you in the sight of God, which makes it more immoral. Mm. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So um, and so there, this this sort of linking it together with the uh, with this divine command theory. Part of me was looking at this headline initially and thinking another one of those science needs to tell us the obvious. Religious people <laughs> believe commandments come from God, therefore. They tend to think of morality in more of a commandment form. Where's the aha moment in that in that particular study? But there was some really interesting things underneath this, and one was that, as we've talked about before a lot on this show, you know, what really drives a strong religious morality is is it might it be factors about a person's personality, their authoritarianism, their conservative attitudes, or if they're fundamentalists. We even have talked before on the show about um, dispositional factors like uh, do they need uh, – do they feel a need for structure or do they use an intuitive thinking style and these types stuff. of things? The way yeah. they think. 
the question has always been what drives the relationship? Does religion make you more authoritarian, conservative and all that or does conservatism and authoritarianism make you buy into this religion? What the study showed was you could control for all of those factors, every single one of them. Yeah, they, they controlled for those cognitive things and still found that divine command found theory – divine command theory. So there is at base, there is something – not going back on the idea that person – that our uh, cultural context and our biology play a role but there is definitely underlying all of this a philosophical idea that's driving preference for divine command theory. Yeah, and that the, uh, religious people form a range on that too. You'd probably find as you would – we've encountered before too – liberal religious people that might balk at divine command theory. They mm -hmm. might try to go outside that and say, well, you know, the golden rule is good not because Jesus says so but because it leads to good consequences. Right. And people like us always pounce on that and say, so it doesn't matter what Jesus says. Why not refer just to the golden rule itself? Oh, you can throw. Yes. Where, whereas <laughs> there's other religious people at the other end of the spectrum. I guess we would call them fundamentalists and, and textual literalists would say – like we said before, they would be consequence blind. They would say, no, it matters because Jesus said yeah. so. So there's a range. It's not just the religiosity. Yes. It's their divine command theory right. within that sub. Maybe, maybe the technical way to put it to reduce errors here is that the uh, divine command theory was what was mediating the relationship between religion and deontological ethics. Yeah, mediating not, or accounting Religion for. is not driving deontological ethics so much as this particular doctrine, this component. Okay. If you – if you accept divine command theory and you're that type of person, that is going to reflect differences in your approach to religion and your approach to ethics. So yeah. is this is this so extreme to the to the in the sense that accepting divine command theory might maybe have you publicly defending ancient genocides? Is this <laughs> is this something that is a plausible outcome of this I, kind of view? I think you're onto something there, Justin. Well <laughs> as we sometimes as we sometimes do on this show, we try to find the real target. What's the real target here? That's the problem. Yeah. And uh, we've said before, you know, it's it's not always it's not always religion so much as fundamentalism. It's not always religion right. so much as authoritarianism. But this seems to be. Well, what this is saying, it's not so much religion as it is divine command theory. Yeah, it's an actual. So document. we're we're kind of carving off areas of religion that do result in deficiencies in a good moral outlook. Or <laughs> well, here's you also encounter people that defend deontological or divine command theory by saying that anything else is morally relativistic. And hey, yeah, those deontologists are holding the ground. They're, they're holding their line on some things are just wrong. And that they and that it causes them to act more morally because they would never kill, for example, mm -hmm. or they're consistent in the fact that they, you know, like Catholic life theory, they're against all forms of harm. And this is where the second study I wanted to talk about comes in because um, this actually empirically looks at the people who are the most deontological and that is religious fundamentalists because arguably if you have a belief in textual authority that provide and you believe that's the moral set of rules, those people are the most – not just religious people in general but those people are the most fundamentalists are the most uh, – would be the most – literalistic about we have to here's the rules and we have to follow it. Now mm -hmm. does that here's the question. Does that make them better people because they're defending this set of 
rules? Or does that make him in some cases, like you just mentioned, more likely to support negative actions? And so what this study, this is the authors here, Blagowska and Saroglau. I've talked about Saroglau's work before That is the a show. great set of names. Yeah, I know. Wow. These Europeans have interesting names. Yeah, they do. <laughs> a, Polish, a Polish person and a, and a Greek guy. But what they tried to do is in a series of experiments was activate the different types of content of religiosity and see how fundamentalists would react. So listeners mm-hmm. might remember I've talked in the show before about priming studies where you activate <clears throat> concepts like flashing words or having people read a text or something like that, that that inclines people to have those concepts activated in their mind. And in these series of studies, there's a few um, – subgrouping of studies, but they did things like have the person meditate on or read about texts that are either like what we would say is um, non-positive texts like Leviticus and stoning and things like that to see how sure. people react and then versus positive texts like Sermon on the Mount type Love compassion. Yeah. Right. And so what because they did nothing is, supports deontology like covenantal moral relativism. Right. Well, this is relevant to deontology because then on a practical level, which rules do people – Take as the set of rules because, as you and uh, as we know, that you know the Bible contains often even contradictory information. Should I be compassionate or judgmental? Right. Should I forgive people or should I stone them? You know, and so which it matters which set in this case the rationale is which one is activated or presented as you know. Let's let's think about that part of. So, for example, in one of the studies, they had people read a passage from Leviticus on stoning people. Uh, and then it turned out that the relig- they gave people an opportunity to. Bob Dylan did a song about that, didn't he? Everybody must get stoned. That's right. That's, yeah, yeah. You know, he took that from the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then he, he had people uh, do hypothetical pro-social things like would you help somebody in need uh, even if they weren't familiar to you kind of thing. And then he, then you can measure like how, how helpful people said they would be. And it turns out that the religious fundamentalists uh, in the control condition where they didn't read about Leviticus were not helpful to these – or hypothetically helpful, helpful to these unknown people. They were less, in other words, helpful. But when, uh, when they were when they're given this Leviticus stony passage, they become even more unhelpful. So mm-hmm. here you have this manipulation where thinking about a stony Bible passage makes people, especially fundamentalists, worse. So they, they totally forgot about that whole Good Samaritan story then. The, uh, so the better known, more, uh, more publicized. You can uh, see where this is going and that is, it's not the Good Samaritan but in another study <laughs> they had a passage from Luke chapter 6 that was about loving and forgiving. I think that's Sermon on the Mount type stuff. Forgive people, turn the cheek and whatnot and they had the opposite effect. That hippy-dippy crap. Yeah, that the fundamentalists became more helpful – than the non-fundamentalist after being exposed to that passage. So mm. if you follow the logic here, oh. it depends on which values are presented to them or primed in their consciousness. They could sure. be either better or worse people. So if fundamentalist churches every Sunday were, were giving these positive hippy-dippy That's messages, the mm-hmm. they would walk away and be better people. That's one of the implications. I mean, <laughs> Is that is that fundamentalists might actually be – because they take this as being that's their moral text. Like we've said before, mm-hmm. deontological would say these are the standards they view as being from the mouth of God. If you emphasize positive ones, they actually might be better people than maybe non-fundamentalists because they're more literalistic. Let's go do it. God says yeah. so. It's probably just because they're exposed to things like like you mentioned, authoritarian stoning stuff more often that that's the way that they tend to turn Yeah, you out. read that. In, in any week where they're studying the Old Testament, they're just – Dicks. Yeah, so you give them, you give them a little bit of uh, just super sermon on people. the mountain. All of a sudden, they're much nicer. Here, here was, let me read a quote from the uh, discussion of this article because I think it captures it. They say fundamentalist attitudes towards these outgroups are importantly malleable, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. 
due to the fundamentalist dependence on religious authority and the very nature of authoritative religious texts. Consequences may be positive if the religious message is compassionate, such as increased positive attitudes towards these outgroups, or they may be negative, such as increased negative attitudes towards the outgroups if the religious messages legitimize aggression. So the translation is that that deontological aspect of the fundamentalists could go either way. Mm-hmm. It just depends on what sort of material they're presented with and, and also who the target is, who's the person that they're you – know, if, if you say there's an Am- Amalekite, they're right. probably less likely to be helpful to that person because of divine command theory. God said wipe them out. If it's a fellow group member, they might be likely to be more positive because, hey, I got to stick with the tribe. So these are these are a group of people that are. So you mean we can't even lump fundamentalists all into one group? <laughs> Fuck right. <laughs> um, the, the article uses the term malleable. I'd say easily manipulated would be another way to put that. It's not exactly a positive thinking because it's no. you know that that sort of shifting of well it depends I could go either way here. That's uh, the authors actually say that that it may be superficial because it seems based on submissiveness to the mm. religious teachings. Right. You know, which isn't even the case for for other religious people other than fundamentalists. Submissiveness and dependence are not the best guarantee, they say, for internalization right. of pro-social moral values. Hmm. It's kind of like just what we've said about faith all along on this on this show. It's it's the real problem with faith is mostly that it's a kind of a wild card. You you really right. just don't know when it's well, we've had people on this show before who are liberal religious types who we probably agree with on 95 percent of the sure. social issues. The problem that, that makes us nervous is that when these people say because Jesus says so or they refer yeah. to a religious value because as yeah. soon as you get into that territory – And there's no uh, guarantee that they're going to have – Yeah, the fundamentalists in some cases are, are more correct. The Bible does say you know, stone people and slavery and all that stuff. So right. it's not exactly – then it becomes a debate about what God meant or what he was to say rather than the consequentialist is right. do what's right and who yeah. cares who said it. We'd rather see people do the right thing for the right reason, not – on accident. <laughs> right. And right, it yeah. appears to be the same way with the fundamentalists. Yep. We would like the intensity of the belief to come out of conviction and reason and, and not out of just yeah. submissiveness to what the pastor read. We don't want the goodness of, of liberal Christians to be simply an experiment in getting your counterexamples. Well, look, yeah. So looking ahead to, to, <laughs> the, to the philosophy <laughs> some of the other moral uh, things that we're looking ahead to, the, my third part installment is coming up. I'm going to be talking more about things uh, along these lines, but also it's to some of the perhaps unexpected relationships and, and questions that utilitarians like us have to answer. In some cases, empathy and emotion and that stuff we consider squishy sometimes make you act like a better person. So consider that trolley mm-hmm. scenario. So again, this is the one where you know the trolley is the footbridge. You're watching a trolley. It's going to smash five people. If you flip the switch, it will be shunted off and only kill one person. Too bad, but five is better than one. Or you could shove the fat man off the footbridge to derail the trolley. This is the one that people always give as the – the thing that makes people nervous. It's mm-hmm. the same consequences. One person sacrificed to save five, but you're now actively pushing the guy instead of flipping the switch. Mm-hmm. Now, the action should be that if you're a robot, that decision is so the same yeah. decision. Yeah. But since you're an emotional creature, most people, I would hope, hesitate and say, I don't you know get, about I shoving mean, the It's the difference guy. between putting your hand on a lever and pulling it and, and feeling the warm – Flash as it the, goes over. Yeah. Proximity. Yeah. Now, the, we can blame the switch somehow. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It's the switch. There's a flip side to that too though, which is – I mean they noticed this in, in uh, combat scenarios. 
it's hard to get you to lay waste to a group of people where there might be civilians if it's you and the gun and you're right next to them. But if you're over them in the air and dropping, yeah, dropping a, a drone bomb, yeah, sure. that proximity or gut easier. instinct is removed. And, uh, Which and, is why drones yeah, work sure. so well because yeah. you're, you're as far removed as – you're not even flying over them. You're, you're practically playing a video game. Yeah, Arizona you're playing a video a game. button and pretty lights – now, one of the researchers in this field, I actually had a t- heard a talk with him earlier in the year, Joshua Green, and he said utilitarians probably in many cases save more people, but you wouldn't want to be next to a guy that's like too utilitarian. You want somebody to at least have a little bit of emotional hesitation like – So how many uh, healthy organs you got there? Because I got yeah. six people here. Because see, when they tested – when <laughs> they tested, drink uh, by – just why? <laughs> no reason. No, no reason. reason. Just wondering. When they test uh, psychopaths in these scenarios, these are people who have like brain damage that make them psychopathic. They also show no hesitation in shoving the fat guy off. They're very utilitarian. They're they're very utilitarian. They Mm. don't even have any sort of qualm about that whatsoever. Dexter. Dexter was a utilitarian. So we want, it's good to think in the abstract about being rational and practical, but would you really want somebody who's utterly practical and utterly rational with no sort of emotions whatsoever? Well, so this really puts us in quite a bind then. How how the hell am I supposed to behave morally? You're supposed to <laughs> do the rational I, thing but regrettably, but have guilt about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and every once in a while let my emotions trump my reason and just follow my passions. And, and, and how am I supposed to work out when I'm supposed to do that and when I'm supposed to stick with cold, hard, utilitarian reasoning? These are the things that kept you in high school that kept you awake all night. Well, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have hit the bully back when he hit me because that's just retaliation. Yeah, seriously. I feel guilty about that. I should have been lifting weights and learning to dance. I think uh, I think my <laughs> life would have would have panned out quite a bit differently than focused on those I shouldn't have asked her permission before I just puzzles. kissed her. I should have just kissed her. Stupid, stupid. <laughs> and now let's turn to some polyatheism. This time in polyatheism, we journey to the weird and wild world of Japan. Rather than looking at a single god, this time we're looking at a collection of beings known as yokai. Yokai are any number of supernatural critters, most devious tricksters, whose misdeeds range from the mundane to the outright malicious. You got to catch them all? You know what? Hmm. Absolutely. Pokemon (laughs) is very much inspired by by the yokai. Um, Thanks to uh, further investigation (laughs) into the yokai, I have much more appreciation than the no appreciation I had for Pokemon uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Sweet. Lay it on us. All right. Uh, The term yokai mashes up words meaning attractive calamity. And apparition or mystery. I know some people like that. Absolutely. So we have these mysterious, often attractive, and calamitous critters. They're also called um, Mononoke, which is Princess Mononoke. Anyone seen that cartoon? That was a big uh, anime cartoon. Was she the one that died and became the spirit of the moon? I have no idea. I tried watching it and got bored in ten minutes. Um, and they're essentially – they're held responsible for anything weird that happens without an apparent explanation. Uh, yokai come in many forms, some good, some bad, and some just plain annoying. They can range in type from animals to ghosts of humans and even household objects. Oh, mononoke of the gaps. Make those arguments. <laughs> That's exactly right. So it's like animism. Everything yes. has an animistic spirit. Yeah. Um, in fact, any object older than 100 years, according to Japanese tradition, gains a spirit form. My house just gained a spirit. Yep. 
the Caracasa. <laughs> the messy one. <laughs> the Caracasa Kozo um, are animate paper umbrellas uh, with one large eye, a single leg that they hop around on the handle of the umbrella becomes their leg, and a big long tongue. They mostly just sneak up on people and give them slimy licks. So as far as yokai go, you're getting off pretty easy if you're haunted by a Caracasa. Uh, what a weird image this is. Oh, I've got a book. In fact, I'll plug the book at the end here. Um, the I just uh, like like Japanese culture uh, and mythology <laughs> is like an LSD trip. I, it's just I found it really hard to get into oh, at first, good. and I think I was just reading the wrong stuff. But my god, it's so much fun. Um, you get into the yokai, and it's endless entertainment. Um, next, there's the. Kitsune or Fox, um, one of the best known yokai and is frequently benevolent. You'll find them depicted in many Shinto shrines where they serve as protecting spirits. Sometimes they have multiple tails like Sonic's friend, Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, and what does the fox say? Uh, ring ding 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 ding. Something like that. Um, or even uh, sometimes they look human. Uh, these spirits come from the very old Japanese idea that foxes are amazingly long-lived. And therefore, once they break that 100-year barrier, they gain all these nifty magical powers. Uh, another well-known breed of yokai is the tanuki. Uh, like the fox, a tanuki is a real animal. It's a raccoon dog-looking thing. You may recognize it from Mario 3. Where he gets the tanuki suit that allows him to fly, uh, the raccoon thing. So oh, they I love fly? That game. Uh, no, they do not fly. Can they um, attack turtles with their tail? They absolutely can. I have no idea. Just go really high on the first level and you can just skip everything. Yeah, right. Just, you get your uh, warp whistle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the tanuki of legend are some of the nastiest tricksters around. Um, they are, however, most notable for being depicted with enormous testicles. <laughs> Way like, to go, tanuki. Really really enormous testicles. Uh, there's an anime with a bunch of tanuki um, where they use their testicles as parachutes and even beat oh up God. humans with them, which seems like the worst <laughs> tactical weapon you could use. Um, blunt force trauma yeah. in the head. <laughs> uh, depictions of in the uh, tanuki's engorged cargo go back <laughs> hundreds <laughs> of years. If you want to see... Some great Japanese art. Look up ancient Tanuki depictions. They will blow your mind. Um, one of my favorite of the better-known yokai are the kappas. Uh, kappas are these reptilian turtle monkey baby things, often blamed in drowning cases. Uh, <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, kappas live in small bodies of water throughout Japan, and you can still find signs warning about kappas around pans in Japan today. Like modern signs, not signs that have been sitting there for 600 years. Modern signs warning about the presence of kappas. Uh, they also kidnap, rape, look up women's skirts, and fart loudly in public. <laughs> oh, and they drink blood and or suck your soul from your anus. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. The only <laughs> way to – Japan, folks. The only way to stop a kappa is to spill the water that they hold in a little hole – on the top of their heads. Once that pours out, they are rendered powerless or even dead. Luckily, even though they're really nasty little critters, they are exceptionally polite. And if you greet them, they will bow to you, thus spilling the water from their heads. 
Yes, don't let them get close to your cornhole, man. <laughs> That's right. Uh, another way to warn off uh, kappa attack is to write your family name on a cucumber and toss it into a kappa nest. <laughs> Cucumbers are their favorite food, not sucked from an anus, and thus they will spare you and your kin in thanks for the treat. If you're too proud, <clears throat> Dr. Professor, when you die, you may become a type of yokai known as the tengu. Uh, tengu are these bird-human hybrids that come from the ghosts of arrogant people. Uh, there's two primary types of tengu. might actually be three. Um, but there's the dai tengu and the ko tengu. Dai tengu look mostly human with enormous noses. Um, the bigger, the more powerful. Um, and they have wings. Dai tengu spend most of their time in meditation, and you'll occasionally find a benevolent one willing to train a hero or some such Kotengu, on the other hand, are much more bird-like and much more vicious. They carry an assortment of weapons, rape, murder, and eat humans for the hell of it. They kidnap people and drive them crazy by forcing them to eat poop, kind of like human centipede. Uh, their favorite activity of them all, however, is to torture nuns and priests and seduce clergy. So they're not all that bad. <laughs> Which, if they were Catholic rather than Buddhist, I'd say is kind of turnabout being fair play. Um, now, there are hundreds of yokai, some with ancient history and multiple sources, and a whole bunch that seem to have been created by a single twisted fellow a couple of centuries back. Uh, I could go on for days about the yokai, and in fact, we'll probably revisit them again sometime soon in polyatheism. But here's just a couple quick ones to whet your appetite. There is the Tofu Kuzo, who look like little boys, and all they seem to do is serve uh, other yokai, and occasionally people, Tofu. There's the Makura Geishi, who move your pillow to the foot of your bed while you sleep. But that's okay, because if you have a bad dream as a result... Ibaku, who has the head of an elephant, body of a bear, and the tail of an ox, can come and eat those bad dreams. Oh my god, stay away from me. <laughs> then again, yeah, what's, what dream could be worse yeah, than yeah. one of those? <laughs> Jesus. Um, then again, Stick with the dream. You may still end up getting smothered by Jatai, an animate kimono who becomes a snake-like monster at night. If you're lucky, though, you may catch a glimpse of the rare Shiri Mei, whose name literally means butt eye, and they have a single glowing eye in their butts. <laughs> they featureless faces, they look like humans, they will walk up to you, disrobe, bend over, and then chase you. Yeah, alright. Uh, if I ever visit Japan, I'm just stitching up my butthole before I even go out there. <laughs> Um, by this the way, culture is way too obsessed with the folks, anus. Um, you thought the red, the flag with the red dot is with the rising sun. <laughs> it's like the, they, that's what they just tell other people. It's like it's, yeah, it's like the, the rising sun. Down, the original the, design was uh, a ruby starfruit. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, listeners out in Japan or those of you who travel to Japan, if you find any yokai memorabilia. Pictures, statues. There are statues of tanukis all over Japan, apparently. I will gladly take those off your hands. Um, email us, doubtcast at gmail.com. I'll let you know the address you can send them to. I want to fill my house with horrifying yokai. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a fun project. Yeah, right. But uh, we'll stop there for now. Um, however, I encourage those of you out there who are as in love with the yokai as I've become to check out the website yokai.com. That's Y O K K A I. 
Um, where I got a lot of this information, and they have an ever-expanding encyclopedia of yokai, including really beautiful illustrations to accompany each. Also, I cannot recommend highly enough the book Yokai Attack. <laughs> By <laughs> right here, I'm holding it up for Yo-Kai the listeners. <laughs> it is, um, it's awesome. Uh, yeah. um, by Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt. Um, it is a gorgeous looking book, chock full of information about all manner of yokai. Um, yeah, get it, get it, get it. In the meantime, there you have it: the yokai, Japanese tricksters. Both benevolent and malevolent, and just one more supernatural bestiary worth not believing in. And now, let's turn to uh, some props. Luke, you brought in uh, a prop story for uh, this episode that takes us out to Ethiopia. Yes, as some people familiar with geography might know, Ethiopia tends to be mostly Christian in its makeup with some Muslim populations so the towns are sort of like una religious but spread out and mostly christian but this was uh, i heard about this story through the friendly atheist website with, who had heard about it from a public radio international story where they have some audio of this but apparently this town was founded differently in almost as a, like a utopian community to be non-religious mm-hmm. yeah and which affects their uh, their productivity their work patterns and what they would argue uh, is that their their prospering because they don't have the religious strife and also they don't take you know days off for religious holidays but that's engendered actually not the admiration but the scorn of the people around them mm-hmm. who view them as shifty shady atheist town members yeah mm-hmm. another thing they did uh, was they trying to be true to this kind of egalitarian setup that they are aspiring towards uh, they they let women do the roles that traditionally <gasps> are assigned to men heathens which surprisingly frees up about half of their workforce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so they have twice as many people working the fields and and uh, as they did before. The average income and, is nearly twice as high as surrounding areas. Literacy rates are higher, and they have a public library. They they have like yep. facilities for the whole tribe. I mean, we're only talking about five hundred people here, right? But they have facilities that are like communal facilities that they can all use to their own benefit. It's like Denmark and the Horn of Africa. Yeah, and one of the things they attribute their success to is the fact that because they're not religious, um, they don't break for holidays and yeah. weekends. They, it's they Bartholomew's work seven days a week. I can't which work. to me is like the only thing I like about religion. <laughs> right. That's a first world uh, yeah. advantage though. Yeah, like, whoa, I want some time off. I don't but, remember the last time I had a day off, but that's beside the point. Well, none of us really have days off, right. but you know what I mean. But uh, yeah, so that as opposed to the surrounding areas, which are quite religious and will shut down every Sunday and will, and hate them and hate they them. Drive by now apparently and fire guns and oh uh, my god, someone threw a grenade into the middle of their town and sabotaged the harvest. They're seen as uh, heretics and. Uh, and what was cute was the one quote from one of the neighboring villages where the guy says, uh, yeah, these people, they uh, they don't believe in religion. They're selfish. I hate them. <laughs> like, which to me is they so clearly so easy for like, themselves. like they're 
taking care of their own needs. I don't see how that's selfish. But uh, but so far, violence, major violence has been staved off because they have little regional meetings and they right. invite everybody together and talk all this out and air things. And air within the, the community itself, uh, mortality rates are much lower than they are elsewhere. So there's not a lot of violence within the group. Yeah. Um, it's it's this amazing little uh, secular utopia. And, and another parallel with stuff I've seen around here, even though the neighboring – communities hate their lack of religion, they eagerly send their children off to their <laughs> schools that's right. you know, uh-huh. because that's where they're getting a better education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so props to them. Yeah. It's really awesome um, amazing. Great great to um, see uh, stories like that, especially coming out of a place like Ethiopia, which is generally a quite religious and, and a, a place that's been bothered by a lot of religious uh, infighting. If you're going to go ever. tour Ethiopia, go support them and go to their you know library and their internet cafe. Yeah, so. yeah. Araamba, Ethiopia. Check it out. It's, it's small, 500 people, but hey, they're doing great. So be sure to check that out. And um, now... Shall we wrap up with uh, some Stranger Than Fiction? Meet the priests of Italy's Roman beefcake calendar, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that's essentially all there is for the 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 uh, what is the name of the actual calendar the, again? Well, the 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 Roman calendar. Actual title is Il Calendario Romano. Oh God, already sounds sexy, right? The Roman calendar <laughs> is what that translates to, and it's basically to. just the hottest Vatican priests yes. getting their own photo each each month. And apparently, this has been around for a decade. Yeah, ten it's, years now, I believe. It's, yep. it's called. Uh, it's jokingly referred to as the Roman Beefcake Calendar. Mm-hmm. It, black and white photos, so tasteful. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. No one's defrocked or anything. For being in it or while being in it. And we should say it. this isn't like an official Vatican publication. No, no, no but it is sold in the Vatican in like uh, gift, shops gift shops around oh, really? the Vatican. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, you could totally get your Roman beefcake calendar and then go try to get it signed. I think know? we should get one. Can someone send us a Roman beefcake calendar, And, and folks, if uh, – yeah, if you're in Rome, well, do as the Romans do. Maybe we should but, just make uh, our own – that was good, Dave. I'm yeah, sorry thanks. to interrupt it. No, it's fine. Uh, well, <laughs> I, and I, w- I was going to say, if you're in Rome uh, and you can get a copy of this calendar Please. or better yet, a Roman gay bar that has one up on the wall – Please get yourself a selfie with that and send a, send that into doubtcast yes, at gmail dot yes, com. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's the best thing ever, right? That that would be cool. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> so, we could always make our own uh, Roman beefcake calendar, and we could start dressing up in the collars. Uh, I've seen you do that, Justin. Before, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, go, I dress up in collars and go to gay bars. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not joking. Really? <laughs> I've seen this happen. Yes, Justin. I, I make I make Justin all the gay people there feel very uncomfortable about their past. Yeah, people should know this who listen to the podcast. He's not joking. I didn't know. This. I have photos. Yeah, I have a collared shirt, man. Oh, dresses up official... as a priest and goes to gay bars, <laughs> and then photo bombs. And I get people. my dance on. <laughs> Do you have a character that you play? Like, oh, this is my first time here, and uh, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of. Eh. 
Well, I'm, re- I'm ready for whatever, you know. I bet you he gets more people hitting on him than <laughs> – Yeah, but if I, go, if I go to a bear club, man, <laughs> yeah. oh, guess no, yeah. who is uh, oh, yeah. the bell of the ball? I'm sure man. your dance card is full. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, right. Justin, I've always liked you now more than ever. Uh, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. I don't know if you saw this, but um, there's a new Sam Jackson movie coming out soon that's going to oh. seriously mess with our oh, SEO. Oh, God. Um, which, to be I'm fair, tired of that guy. Um, already um, has an early 90s television series, a book about O.J. Simpson, a Jay-Z album, and an actual legal term stacked against us. We really so, just need to change the name of this podcast to Doubtcast. What does the SEO the, no mean? No one has that name. That's true. It's a clever name. What does SEO mean? What? Search engine What's optimization. Search engine In other optimization? words, it's hard to find us online yeah. because so many other yeah. things pop up when you when you Google Although, reasonable and doubts. May, maybe this is because Google is super intelligent and, and is reading my mind. When I Googled reasonable doubts earlier, we came up first. Yeah, we were, yeah. We were the okay, top but don't thing. we benefit from that if somebody else says reasonable doubts, they come to us. Well, I don't think people who are looking for a Sam Jackson movie are going to download our podcast, but it. You might be right. It might work both ways. We'll, uh... Correct my logic if I'm wrong, but if somebody wants us, they search reasonable doubts and they go until they find us. If somebody doesn't want us and wants Samuel Jackson, they do reasonable doubts and might find us and then come. Although the movie's called Reasonable Doubt, but that's beside the point. Anyway, what, what I'm going to suggest to our listeners is in order to keep our SEO nice and strong, um, I'm going to ask you to help boost our signal by visiting our website at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com. Slash reasonable doubts. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at slash doubtcast for all three of those sites. Um, tweeting us or writing about us on Twitter, on Facebook. It helps. Um, writing it really review on help. iTunes or Stitcher. Oh, I was going to pull up some reviews and see if there are new ones to read. Oh, there are. There have been there lovely reviews. People have been so nice in the past couple of weeks in uh, in putting up reviews on Stitcher and iTunes. And so thank you mm. for everybody who's done that. It helps yep. us out. And if you can do more, <laughs> yep. please do. Like we said last time, with a show that's been around for as long as we have, it's hard for us to stay at the top of the list unless we're getting reviews because we're not getting a ton of new listeners necessarily, although we hear from new listeners all the time. But a new show can start up and boom, get 2,000 new listeners yeah. right away. Yeah. They may disappear after the first episode, but – um, we have a strong listener base, and the only way to keep uh, keep us in the spotlight, as it were, is to um, get those reviews cranking. So um, please help us out with that if you can. And uh, hell, why not even uh, write a blog about the show? Not you, Randall Rouser. I'm t- Speaking of which, coming up this holiday season, a new debate featuring Randall Rouser will be coming down the feed. Um, and, and, and Chris Hallquest, yes. Yes. Uh, which it's about time we get him on the show in some sort of capacity. Yep. Yeah. More on that later. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, so check for that. Um, and as always, please do email us your questions, comments, suggestions, and challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. We've got a couple of stories probably coming up for the next episode that were listener-suggested. And uh, we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.